Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to my podcast on the shoulders of giants. If you are enjoying listening to these episodes, please do me a favor and rate the show and write a review in iTunes and the Play Store. It will help get the word out, and apparently, people trust the comments and reviews of complete strangers. You can also write me with feedback and comments at charlesrotanera at hotmail.com or go to my website at www.tcrutanera.com. That's T for Tino Tender, C for Charles, R-U-T-A-N-H-I-R-A.com. Thanks, and now on with the show. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. It's funny. I had never seen snow until I came to America. Trying to explain it to my family and friends uh, who were still in Zimbabwe was strangely one of the most uh, challenging things I've ever had to do. Snow is something that you need to see and experience multiple times and in large quantities to appreciate. One of the most curious things I've not really been fully able to comprehend about snow is the silence with which it falls. You can go to bed and wake up the next morning completely oblivious to the severity of a storm that swept through overnight. With that description in mind, now try describing skiing to somebody in Zimbabwe. That's a conversation for another day and over a couple of brewskis. Anyway, by virtue of the fact that I live in Vermont, I've embraced this phenomenon called snow and taken up skiing and following the inspiration of the 1998 Jamaican bobsled team, I've often been tempted to become Zimbabwe's first Winter Olympian. I'm hopeful that this dream will be sparked back into life after I speak to my guest, Hannah Kearney. Hannah was born in February 26, 1986 in Norwich, Vermont. She's a mogul skier who won a gold medal in the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver and a bronze medal in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. As a youth, Hannah was a multi-sport talent, participating in soccer, track, and ski teams. But when she took up skiing full-time, she won two competitions in her rookie season when she was only just 17 years old. A year later, Hannah was the 2005 Mogul World Champion, which was then followed by an unbelievable win streak. From 2004 through 2015, Hannah amassed two Olympic medals, three world titles, and a record-tying 46 World Cup wins. I'm in the presence of skiing royalty, and so with a reverend bow, I'd like to say welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast to Hannah Kearney. Thank you so much for having me, Tino. That was a wonderful, wonderful welcome and intro. 
Awesome. Um, so you grew up in uh, Norwich, Vermont. Uh, can you tell me about your childhood, uh, your siblings, your family life before skiing consumed your life? Absolutely. And skiing was a part of my life from the very beginning, um, but it was balanced with all sorts of other things. I think the reason I started skiing, um, well, I had no say in that. I had no choice in starting skiing. It was a family activity, and I was so young that I actually do not remember learning how to ski. Um, my mother was pretty diligent about the home videos, so I've seen, I've seen the home videos, um, but it was a family activity. And it's, what else are you supposed to do when the ground is completely covered in snow and the days are short um, <laughs> and you still want to be outside? Um, so my family, my parent, neither of my parents grew up skiing either. My mom's from Montreal and my dad's from Pennsylvania. Um, when they married, they kind of moved to the middle, which happened to be Vermont, um, and they had picked, they had picked up skiing later in their life, and I think they enjoyed it enough that they thought um, we should teach our kids young. So my brother and I, uh, he his name's Denny, and he's two years younger than I am. We both learned to ski when we were uh, less than no, about two, almost exactly two years old. So very young. Um, we had horses in our backyard, and my parents used to take uh, we had a draft horse, so they took her horse halter and they put my body inside of the horse halter and then just kind of let me go down the hill holding me back with a lead line, uh, like a leash basically. And now they sell harnesses for this sort of thing, specifically for skiing, but back in the day they did not. So that is how I learned how to ski, how to ski at Burke Mountain um, in kind of the middle of Vermont um, because they had a weekday only season pass that my parents could afford. My dad was a carpenter, uh, still is, and my mother was and still is the recreation director. Um, in Norwich, Vermont. So it was very much just a family activity, but my brother and I both loved gliding down the hill, and I think we liked spending time um, with our parents in the mountains. Uh, I remember my dad setting up lights in our backyard and building us this little jump. Um, he actually took my brother's hockey stick and marked the jump because the lights were not that bright. <laughs> and then my brother and I would just hike this tiny little hill and go off the jump with absolutely no form or grace whatsoever, um, but we that's the start of the 10,000 hours I needed to become a good uh, jumper and a good, and a good mogul skier, but it was well before I realized that, that was something that was going to become a career. Wow. So I know uh, you, you said your parents weren't skiers, so where do you think you can attribute your skiing talent, or is, was it just the fact <laughs> that you you worked so so hard towards it and put in, like you said, the 10,000 hours that you became good at this? Uh, I think it was a bit of everything, some of it being luck and good timing, but my parents were both athletic, so they weren't, they didn't grow up skiing, but they were both athletes, and uh, whether I got some of their genetics, I can thank them for that, but the other part of it was that sports were really, and activities were really important to them, so as little kids, that's all we spent our time doing was either going on hikes or, or biking or building jumps in the backyard or going skiing or playing, of course, sports through the rec department. But mostly just we were just purely active. We were always like racing other kids in obstacle courses at the playground that our parents would time us. Okay, who that was probably the reward was probably like an Oreo cookie or something like that. Who's going to be the fastest one through the obstacle course um, at the playground? So it was just, it was sports and athletics. Um, were just emphasized in our everyday life. So I think that is, and, and then I naturally was good at skiing and enjoyed it. So that combination um, set me on that path. 
right? I know nowadays that there's sort of a movement for parents not to expect their kids to be the next LeBron James or Serena Williams. So do you feel like your parents uh, pushed you? Because I'm assuming back then it probably wasn't as uh, big a deal that parents sort of were a lot more, maybe for lack of a better word, disciplinarians about that sort of thing? Um, I think I, I see myself as like the end of an era, like maybe the last generation that doesn't have to do a sport full-time from the age of 10 on to become an Olympian. I truly was uh, an all-round athlete all the way through high school until I focused exclusively on skiing. And, of course, because I experienced it and it was successful for me, I happen to think that that was um, really beneficial. But I understand that in a world where kids are specializing at such a young age, um, it's harder to, to do that and be competitive on an international stage. I think that when I look back at my childhood and the way my parents supported me, it, it really was the perfect balance. I never, ever felt pressured. I'm sure I got into arguments with my parents about either not wanting to do something um, that, yeah, or wanting to quit, and they were always really reasonable about it. it was, they encouraged me. Um, I was a shy kid, and so my mom actually bribed me into trying both soccer <laughs> and track. I think it was a pair of running shoes and a pair of soccer shorts, and she's like, all it was, it was just the only commitment was that I had to go for a full day or at one track meet and one soccer practice. I just had to try it. Um, and that bribe was all that it took because as soon as I experienced those sports, I really enjoyed them. And um, from that point on, it was my own decision um, to continue to compete or play. And then with skiing, um, it was, I think, I think again, I think it was a similar balance. They could tell I loved it, and they made a lot of sacrifices for me. I mean, talk about giving up your your life, your winter life, certainly, to drive my brother to hockey practices and games and me to ski competitions and ski practices. I mean, it was, my parents did not see each other at all in the winter because we were just on separate paths. And financially, skiing is an incredibly expensive sport, so they helped me write letters and put together a resume. And we're talking about an 11 or 12-year-old kid here putting together a resume. It really was just wow. my report card from, <laughs> from yeah. school. But just because they saw that it was important to me, but it never felt like they never pressured me to go to a ski academy. I think they saw that I was talented, and they, they easily could have said, you should really focus on this, but never once did I feel that, that pressure. Um, at all. So thank you, mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, it, an interesting point that you raised is the fact that uh, nowadays you you almost have to become a specialist at the age of 10 or something in yeah. order to, to, to be good at something because you, you've taken away all the all-rounders all uh, who could, you know, play all these activities and still emerge, you know, at the top of their discipline. Whereas nowadays, you know, like you're saying, you have to start really young to to pick whatever sport that you identify with and stick with it, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's really hard because you some you don't know yourself that well when you're ten years old, and sometimes what you're good at isn't necessarily what you love, and it's hard to um, it's hard to overcome that. If you burn out, um, if, if someone as talented as ever um, will never develop a successful career because if by age uh, 15 or 20, you've already been already sick of it because you're overtrained, then that's kind of a wasted, wasted gift. So yeah. I think it has to be fun. Um, sports are supposed to ultimately be fun. Yes, they teach you a million life lessons and um, we take them incredibly seriously. But if it's not fun, you might as well just go get a desk job that pays better and it's probably um, less risky. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. So when did you start getting serious about skiing and uh, start getting into some serious coaching? When I when I made qualified for the US ski team, it was my first time I'd ever been to Europe. 
it was a, a junior world championship, and I won that competition at the end of my sophomore year of high school. And that was sort of a path forward. So it was all of a sudden something that I could do beyond high school. Of course, I wasn't gonna play, I wasn't good enough at soccer or track to really do much with it beyond high school. And so those sports were going <laughs> to, my career in those sports was going to end in the next year and a half when I graduated. Um, and so skiing, I mean, I think I knew all along that I was like better at skiing than I was at those sports, but it, I genuinely at the time sort of uh, valued them all the same. And then at that point, I realized that was kind of my, something something for me to focus my energy on. And so I'd say it really became serious when I, when I graduated high school because I did not apply to colleges. I did not pursue any other sports. So it became um, much more consuming because it was sort of all I had going on in my life, for better or for worse. There were moments that that was not a good thing, um, but ultimately it allowed me to become a really successful, dedicated um, athlete. But that took, that took a while. And so... Prior to sort of qualifying for for that uh, for the junior championships, uh, you you must have started getting pretty good at this activity and uh, starting to realize yourself that you were pretty good. And I'm sure you probably became one of the really cool kids in school because everybody must have known. <laughs> yeah, she's she's onto something there. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm just wondering. Uh, Tell me about uh, Nick Preston and your relationship with him and uh, sort of how you got into uh, his sort of world. So I grew, the first, my first exposure to freestyle skiing, which is the discipline, or moguls is a discipline within the general term freestyle ski. I was taking um, lessons just once a week after school on Wednesdays at the Dartmouth Skiway. It was kind of like everyone in school, would, again, what else are you going to do in the winter? Everyone in school would leave at 2 p.m. on Wednesday and go skiing. But I already was pretty good at skiing, so I tried something called freestyle skiing. And I was so young and so shy, I think it was only in first grade, that my mother actually signed up for the sport or the activity, the class, with me. And we did mobile skiing um, and then ballet skiing, which was actually like with long poles and short skis, and you did routines to music and tricks. And my mom had a gymnastics background. And so that was interesting to her. And because the mountain was so small, we basically only did ballet skiing. But we both really enjoyed it. And so I did it for about two years. And then my mom said, how would you like to go um, drive over to Waterville Valley and just like watch a competition to see if it's something you want to try? And so we did that. And I watched one day. And she's like, do you want to enter the next day? And I was still, I was too nervous. So I waited a whole nother year before I ever entered a competition. But at least I got exposed to it. And Nick Preston is the director, the head, the brainchild behind the freestyle program at Waterville Valley with his wife, Susie Preston, who is just the nicest uh, woman ever. And she was actually one of my very first coaches at Waterville, um, but Nick was running the program. So but so, to, so long story short, for the, the next season, I finally decided, so a whole year later, I'm probably nine, nine years old at this point, um, I decided I was ready to enter a competition. And my very first competition was at Waterville Valley. Um, but I competed as an independent athlete. Usually you're, you're part of a team. So you'd be a part of the Waterville Valley team or the Mount Snow team or the Killington team or the Stowe team. I was just an independent with my mom. And the whole first year I competed um, alone. But that winter for one week, I think during February break, I went and trained with the Waterville program and sort of got introduced to Nick um, and all the athletes and kids and coaches over at Waterville. And I sort of fell in love with the program. I felt like I was part of something, part of a group of um, kids that, that enjoyed the same thing I did and coaches who were supporting those goals. And so at the end of the season, I made the decision that the following year I was going to be a Waterville Valley skier. And that sort of started 
what was the whole rest of my career. I had a very strong relationship um, with Wargo Valley, with the Preston family, and with Nick Preston, uh, specifically, who coached me all the way up through the Olympic Games. Wow. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And so did, uh, did you know that you were pretty good, or were you just sort of um, going through the motions as a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old as you're kind of going through, or was there a point where you were just like, wow, I'm actually really good at this? I think around that age, I was just so competitive and kind of stubborn and hard on myself that I thought I could be good, but I definitely, my results, I wasn't like winning every competition. I always did well within my age group. But of the three disciplines making up freestyle skiing, mogul skiing actually wasn't really my strongest at the beginning. Um, apparently, my mother remembers this. I don't think Nick Preston remembers it, and I certainly don't remember it. But the the week that I went over there to ski when I was nine before I um, joined the Waterville team, uh, it was sort of a trial period. I think my mother asked him, like, is this, is she, is this worth it for her? Is this something that she's good at? Does she have any potential? And he said, kids that ski like that at that age go on either to go to the Olympics. I think he might have just said go to the Olympics. Um, and so my mom said, okay, that's the professional opinion. Um, if she likes it and it seems like she has a shot, well, let's pursue this. Um, so apparently Nick knew my future when I was nine years old. Wow. Wow. That's great. So let's get into the actual discipline of uh, mogul skiing and freestyle skiing. Could you explain to me and to, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there that uh, listen to my podcast uh, may not have a good enough idea of what that is. So could you just kind of explain how it is and how it is scored? Yes. Yes. So a mogul competition, um, the courses now are pretty usually made man-made and pretty manicured but that doesn't make them that much easier. It just means the moguls are slightly more symmetrical than the ones, the bumps of snow that you come across when you're just skiing for fun. So imagine a whole, a 250, between 210 and 250 meter long course of moguls. Um, there are two breaks in the course, and in those breaks are jumps that are constructed with a landing, it's about like four, it would be the distance of four moguls long, but they actually chop and there are no moguls. So the idea is that you land on, um, a non-mobile service, uh, just a land on a soft landing. It's never actually soft, but that's the idea. You land, and then the first turn you make will be a mogul. But they don't want you landing on a mogul so that you would explode because um, really? people are going pretty big now. So you ski, you know, about 20 to 50 meters, and you hit a jump. And you, it's your choice to do whatever jump you want, but at this day and age, it's mostly backflips and off-axis tricks maneuvers of those sorts of double flips are still not allowed. So some variation on a single flip or spin, you land and ski a long middle section of moguls before you hit one last jump, the bottom air. Again, a trick of your choice, all the while trying to ski as fast as you can. Um, and then you land and ski a few turns before you cross the finish line. It's scored, the, the, the emphasis is on the turns, so your form. And that's very subjective, but cleanliness, aggressiveness, um, the, the arc, the carving arc of your ski, and then of course breaks. Any obvious breaks in your legs will be point deductions. Wild hands will be point deductions. Um, and then the jumps are scored based on their form uh, that's multiplied by a degree of difficulty. So it's 60% turns and lines, and then 20% your jumps, and 20% uh, your time. So skiing a good mobile mm -hmm. run is very satisfying. Um, because it's really hard, because there's, there's so many different 
components. And what's also fun is that it, there's no such thing as like the perfect mobile run. It could always be better because if it's perfectly clean, you probably should have been skiing faster. So it's finding the balance of <laughs> what makes the best run that you can ski. <laughs> Wow. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Yeah, because I always wondered about the the jump part of it, whether, you know, you could just do something very simple in order to keep your time going. But it sounds like if you did that, you're probably not getting sort of the, the stylistic points. Uh, for, for exactly, but it is but it is a balance. There's some strategy, and then there's a there's an event called dual moguls where you ski head to head against someone, and it's just sort of the winner advances. In that case, a lot of times people make their jump a little less difficult because they're going so much faster because you're racing someone head to head. So you're you're right. There's there's definitely strategy um, to it. That's cool. Now I'm already like seeing myself on the, on the slopes and uh, trying out these jumps. And I am completely useless when it comes to the jumps. So uh, clearing one mogul is good. <laughs> um, so let's get into the you know into the Olympics themselves. You know, and when did you start dreaming about the Olympics? You know, when did it become reality for you? Uh, two separate things. I started dreaming about them long before I knew anything about mobile skiing. Um, as soon as the, the first time I ever saw them on the TV, and we we didn't have cable or anything like that. We just had the rabbit ears on our on our television in Vermont. Yeah. Um, but we could usually we could usually pick up the CBS maybe at that point coverage of the Olympic Games. And I remember I was obsessed with them, specifically the Winter Olympics, because I think the first ones I probably really remember were. Like 92, I was six years old. So those, and that's actually the first uh, time mobile was in the Olympics. And I just loved watching every part of it, the stories, the sports, all these sports I'd never even heard of or thought about, mm. uh, and then these people competing on an international stage. And so I wanted to be a part of the Olympics um, from that point on, but that was a really obscure dream that had nothing to do with my ability in sport. It just seemed like such a cool experience yeah. and a cool event. And then making the U.S. ski team, well, I'll, I'll actually I'll tell you, but um, in 2002, when I was a sophomore in high school, but before I was on the U.S. ski team, I got a phone call in January that said, it was from someone on the U.S. ski team, and they said, uh, you've probably heard where the Salt Lake City is hosting the Olympics in a month, and we're looking for forerunners, um, which is the person who comes down the course before the competition for the judges to test out their scoring and to make sure the timing works. Um, so it's sort of an honor, but it's, you don't, you're not part of the competition. They had the ski team coaches said, we think that you could be good in the future. We'd love for you to come and forerun wow. and just watch the Olympic Games. And, oh, I remember crying for like 24 hours straight. I was so excited. Um, I, I didn't even I realize there was a forerunner to begin with. So. <laughs> yeah, they, that's not the type of thing anyone ever, usually it's like at a regular competition, it's like the local kids who were from that mountain will do it. Um, but of course the Olympics is a big honor. And so yeah. it was, I got to do that. And in turn, I got to see my first, that was my first international, um, high level skiing competition I'd ever watched. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, they're so good. But then also at the same time being like, well, they're not, I mean, yeah, they're really good. They're going a lot faster than I am, kind of more aggressive. But like, I, I saw what it was going to take and I thought it all of a sudden it became much more realistic. And I actually, I qualified for the ski team a month after that, and I think it was all because I saw it, and then I went home, I learned a new trick, I kind of changed my style of skiing a little bit, and I think I also had the confidence that had been instilled in me from their, their vote of confidence when they said, we'd like to select you as the athlete to do this. Um, and so that, 
that's when I decided that I would like to compete in the Olympics myself, uh, the adult Olympics <laughs> as a mobile skier. And so that was 2002. Wow. So then you got selected in 2006 to the Torino Olympics in Italy, and that was your first Olympics. Yes. Where yes. Uh, you placed 22nd when you were predicted to be <laughs> in medal contention. Um, what happened there? Um, you know, actually, two, two part question here. Firstly, what was that first Olympic experience like? And then kind of going through the event, how, what happened in, uh, in failing to qualify? Well, all sorts of things happened. Um, I'll start with what it was like. It is not my only previous experience besides seeing it um, live in 2002 was from watching it on TV. And when you're actually there competing, it's nothing like it is on TV. It's actually much more of a hassle. You're going through metal detectors and you're wearing these big credentials and there's security guards everywhere. It's, it's intimidating and it's way different in a sport like Molokina. It's so obscure. All of a sudden, the Olympics seems like such a big deal um, <laughs> because it's different than anything else. So yeah. that, and I also, I tried to just be like, oh, it's just any other event. And I didn't really embrace the fact that it's actually quite different because millions of people are watching. Um, and I sort of, uh, I think that I tried to just deny its importance to me. I mean, I was also a 19-year-old, so there's some immaturity that plays a role, too. And so I just sort of kept it bottled all up inside, like, just treat it like any other competition. And I actually felt, like, physically ill the whole time I was there. I was there. My, um, Looking back, I also didn't prepare properly. I had graduated high school the year before, so I spent a year kind of not training, not on purpose, but I all of a sudden didn't have soccer and track in my life anymore, and I was just a little bit, I was a little bit lost. Skiing was all, the only thing in my life, and I wasn't used to that. I was used to balancing it. So it was a combination of not really being adequately prepared, um, and it was also, the numbers were just a very difficult thing to prepare for, so uh, mentally. So I was not physically or mentally prepared. Um, in my qualifying runs, I landed my top jump, and I just hit a mogul. Oddly, it's actually something that kind of happened in 2014 again, but um, I hit a mogul really abruptly, like probably too stiffly, and it, like, threw me out of the course. And so, yeah, I got third to last place. Um, the other thing to mention is just that mogul skiing is, it's hard to be consistently good at mogul skiing because so many things, it's sometimes it blows my mind that anyone makes it down a mogul course at all. Um, because there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, you're doing a backflip, you're landing in mobile, you're trying to go fast, every turn is coming at you quickly, it's easy to get thrown off. And so some of it is just that I didn't have a good day, and unfortunately you have to wait four more years um, if you don't have a, a good day. It can all be over in a split second, which is, it's, which is true to most Olympic sports, and it, which is why it's so fascinating to watch and why there's so many human stories, um, because we all train, every athlete trains really, really hard, and it, there's glory or defeat um, within a moment of each other. Well, I mean, you're saying that it's very difficult to maintain consistency, but you were undefeated for several years, so uh, clearly you were you're you're onto something there, um, which is awesome, by the way. Um, so I want to talk about the Olympic experience itself. You kind of um, alluded to this uh, that you you went into this Olympics and you weren't really sort of adequately prepared and stuff. How, how does the Olympic experience work? Like you, you get a phone call, I'm assuming from somebody 
who says like, all right, because you won this event, you're now part of the team. Then what happens? Like who pays for the event? And like, how do they tell you what dates you're coming and going and all that kind of stuff? Can you take your family and entourage? I don't know. So most of the um, training camps and the uniforming and the lodging and the flights around the Olympics are, are handled by the United States Olympic Committee, which is a, a nonprofit. Um, the United States is one of the few countries in the world that has no government funding for Olympic teams, and so uh, we rely on donations, corporate donations, private donations, um, which is kind of cool because it's that American spirit. Like we can raise as much as we as we can but we don't have any guarantee from the government either. So it's, it's kind of a catch-22. But they're the ones that book our flights and organize everything. However, the whole time, you're dealing with your governing body, which in this case is the United States Ski and Snowboard Association. And that's really comfortable because that's the team you're representing the rest of the four years in between the Olympics. Um, so you end up still, you're still dealing with your same coaches, your teammates. Um, it's very clear. They do, you do get a phone call from your ski team coaches. They tell you you qualified, but usually, you know, unless you're one of like the last spots up to discretion, if you've won certain countries, you know that you're going and you have like a month to prepare. Um, and then the U.S. The United States Olympic Committee does some things with, they do it well in advance, so it's before athletes know whether they qualify, but they sit down in the fall and talk to, you know, everyone on the U.S. team, and they talk to you about your options, tactics for dealing with your family, because families sometimes don't mean to, but they put more pressure on you by talking to you about lodging or booking flights when you don't even know if you qualify for the Olympics. And so they give you tools for dealing with that. They'll even say, you can have your parents call us. We'll help them find lodging and that sort of thing. Because usually families have to book before they know whether their kids are, are going to be competing. So that's, that's another level of that's love, added level of stress um, for the Olympic Games. So ultimately, it's a combination between your... The, your sport, and then the United States Olympic Committee, which covers all sports, winter and summer. Huh. So you said you've, that there's uh, team coaches. So how does that dynamic work between team coaches and your regular coach? Because I'm sure like one's probably telling you one thing, another's probably telling you something else. Is there like sort of a dynamic that you've got to work out? Yeah, you, you just have to communicate key to edit success relationships in coaching or in life, I guess, is uh, communication. Um, for the majority of my career, I just used the team coaches that were available to me. But in an Olympic year, um, you're, you have to remember it's kind of an odd dynamic on a ski team because it's a team sport. So like, it should be in the sense that the athletes are all competing together, sorry, training together. Um, we all travel together, the U.S. team, and then we all have the same coaches. But ultimately, we're competing against each other. So in that pre-Olympic year or that that season leading up to the Olympic Games in Vancouver, that's when I had Nick kind of help me out just to navigate that situation and feel like I was getting enough attention and help that I needed. And throughout my whole career, when I was still just relying on the U.S. team coaches, I over Christmas break or whenever I was back in Vermont, whenever I was at Waterville, I bounced ideas off of Nick. I trained with him. Um, so it's a because it's an individual sport, you sort of you search out all the training you need and the resources you need. Um, but the coaches, the competing coaches are there for you. It's just um, when you need to supplement that. So that's how I saw Nick's um, role in my in my career 
is a really important one, but also supplemental to the training and the coaching that the ski team provided. So when, once I got to the Olympics and only the ski team coaches were allowed to be credentialed and officially at the site, it was not at all strange to be just working with them because I've done plenty of that as well. Oh, okay. I see. You've said that you're, it's a team event. And I'm kind of curious as to the environment and the dynamics between, you know, the people that are your teammates, but they also your competitors or your rivals. And how does that sort of work out where, you know, you're also hoping to beat them, but also hoping that they don't bomb out, you know, this it's kind of a, a strange situation that. Yeah, ideally you want to win and then you want the podium second and third to be your teammates. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's how I viewed it. Um, it yeah, it's, it's unusual. It's, I was on the ski team for 13 years, so it goes in waves. Like anytime you're dealing with groups of human beings, like a large family, I mean, 15 of us would be sort of traveling the world together, male and female. And I think that actually helps balance it out um, because you're not direct competitors with the men. So sometimes that makes it easier to um, just lighten the environment. Yeah. And there were... There were some women, some teammates I really got along with, and they're some of my best friends. There's some that I didn't like at all. It all just depended on the people and the situation. But ultimately, you respected everyone. They're all in it, training hard, kind of with the same goals in mind. And we all had the same attitude. I think everyone wanted to win, but you also support, might as well support the people um, who you travel with and know the best who are your and representing the United States. So it actually worked out just fine. But it is it definitely created you know tough moments. Someone has a win, someone has a lose, and there were dinners after the competition that we're all sharing together, and some people are really happy, and some people are really upset, and yeah. that's just part of it, and, you, and you, get, you get used to it. Wow, yeah, I can imagine, because I'm, I'm visualizing, it's a different situation there, but uh, that, that, that stare that Michael Phelps gave uh, yeah. at the car in, in the 2000 or 200 uh, Butterfly semifinals, you know, um, is there that yeah. kind of uh, dressing room rivalry or banter, or is everybody sort of focused and, you know, do you listen to music, and what kind of music do you listen to pre-game or pre-event? Yeah, usually at the top of the course, um, all the competitors are kind of before a final run. 16 people make the final, so 16 women will be at the top of the course. Um, and usually people are either interacting with their coach or their own teammates or a lot of people just have headphones in listening to music. And that's usually what I did. Um, my theory was that there was nothing I was going to do in the next 10 minutes to get better at mobile skiing. So I just tried to like embody positivity um, and listening to music and like just kind of zoning out, focusing mostly on the music and almost nothing else, um, kind of put me in a good mood. And I, my, the kind of music that I listened to was usually a combo of, I had, I had a comp playlist and it had, had like some 80s pop music on it. It had some what I call hip pop, like, like modern hip hop, um, okay. sort of pop here. Um, and then like classic rock, uh, Van Morrison and <laughs> Steely Dan and... Um, the Rolling Stones. It had so it had a, it had quite a folk music actually too. I like folk music, so it had a weird variety on there, and it would just be depending on the mood of it. Uh, was there a particular song that you knew, like this song, always got you into the zone? No, I didn't have one. I think mostly because I didn't want to have to like panic if I couldn't find it, and so <laughs> yeah. no, there was there wasn't one. Although I have to say, like I think three times. I had a really bad duel against someone when Lady Gaga's poker face was playing. So I don't, I don't know, but I remember that one not being particularly lucky. But I don't, I don't remember any, I don't remember any positive. Well, I do. Okay, the last song that was playing before I won a gold Olympic gold medal was 
an Akon song, and I don't, I think it was Troublemaker or something like that, um, but yeah, there seems to be no correlation between oh, cool. good songs and bad songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I'm assuming that 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 uh, playlist would whittle down to just like four or five songs. Yeah. Those were the the winners, right? <laughs> I tried. I tried not to be too superstitious. It's just too difficult. Yeah, actually, <laughs> to spend energy. On that, did you have any any sort of rituals that you go through? Um, I warmed up really well. I always had like a really, no matter where I was, I would make time to have a really good warm up. Uh, before I even put my ski clothes on. And then the only other thing that I did was I always braided my hair in pigtails and, like, put it up in my helmet. Um, yes. That was, like, my signature look. But it was not superstitious because I've intentionally one time, one time in my entire World Cup career competed without my hair like that. Um, and I won. So there you go. I proved to myself that I could do it. And then I went back to still braiding my hair. Did you stumble onto that or how did that come about? Yeah, I'm, I'm so old that once upon a time we didn't compete with helmets, uh, and it was the first year that they required helmets, and I remember putting on my helmet, and I was like, oh, we all look, I look like a boy. We all look the same now. There's no, like, pom-pom or, yeah, and I thought I just looked weird, and I had really, really long hair. I was 16 years old. I had really long hair, so I actually braided it and kind of, like, looped it around my goggles. It kept it, with all the layers on with skiing, it kept the hair off my neck. I don't like things touching my neck, and it kind of secured my helmet in place, which sounds funny, but the helmets weren't, didn't really fit me that well, so it secured my helmet in place, uh, in place and then it just stuck, and I, and I kept doing it. Yeah, yeah, so, and, and so you've got your Olympic gear on, uh, and uh, this is a clean question, but what do you have underneath? Like, do you have a lucky t-shirt on? Do you, or do you have to wear a particular, like, Olympic gear? Or they, even, supply, even... they supply uh, long underwear. I think Nike was making at that time, um, and so they supply long underwear. But no, I didn't have any special. I usually like to have my legs be warm, so I wear really thick, um, tight, like fleece, fleece lined tights under my um, long underwear. And again, part of that is because you just want your muscles warm. But I also I tore ligaments in my knee one day. It was really hot in France, and I was wearing just shorts underneath. And for some reason, I like I like the feeling of the support. Uh, not actual support, but the hug of the leggings on my on my leg. So I always wear um, those and like a matching top. And usually you get pretty hot skiing mogul, so you wouldn't have that many layers on. You'd usually put a jacket on over you at the top of the course and then take it off um, before you competed. Right, I see. So talking about uh, torn ligaments and stuff, uh, you tore your ACL soon after the Torino Olympics, and then you've also suffered other injuries like uh, concussions, two broken ribs, a lacerated liver, a punctured lung, and a left knee arthroscopy, something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah. I'm it assuming sounds, the list makes it sound worse than it, it was, but yes, that is that's basically the full list of uh, injuries. But you have to keep in mind that, that was 13 year. I mean, actually, it was longer than that, but that was a 13-year professional career. Those are all the injuries I had in that entire time. So I was really relatively healthy in my career. Oh, good. Well, I've been working for over 20, and I've only had an Achilles injury. So, <laughs> yeah, I have you beat. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's <laughs> although, pretty good. although I do spend a lot of time uh, sitting at a desk. Um, so when you're injured, what do you do with yourself? <laughs> um, I did different things both every time that I was injured. Um I think of injuries as a sort of like an opportunity. It was like, okay, 
I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to be back training hard every day at some point. So I sort of embrace it as like, okay, enjoy the fact that you can't run right now because if you remember, running is actually pretty miserable. So just <laughs> relax, try to remind myself to try to be smart. Usually you athletes are competitive and they want to like push themselves and come back too early and then never work. So I was pretty good about doing that. I would distract myself. Um, I adopted a dog when I had my first knee surgery, so I was out for the entire year. And I adopted a dog, and I started doing like a lot of home projects. I took up knitting. I started painting the house and things like that. And then the the liver, the liver, lung, rib, which was all one injury. Um, I put up a Christmas tree in my own house for the first time ever because I was never home during Christmas. I went and visited my brother who was playing hockey in Louisiana at that point. I just sort of like tried to make the most of it. Um, and then the ski team also has resources out here specifically in Utah where you can work with physical therapists and kind of get on like a daily schedule with them. So they help you um, come back from the injury. And that, I don't know, there's, some, there's something nice about the focus of coming back from the injury. There's nothing fun about being injured, but at least you're, you know you're setting goals and you kind of monitor your progress. So that's how I dealt with uh, the yeah. injuries throughout my, throughout my career. So just backing up a bit, they play hockey in Louisiana. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. He left. He wasn't there for very long. He left as soon as he had an opportunity to go to Europe. But yes, that was that was one odd part of his um, career. There's just something not right about that. <laughs> But yeah, I guess I, yeah. Very, very strange. <laughs> um, so, and people talk about mental toughness. Um, you know, how do those injuries sort of uh, help you kind of get tougher mentally? This one maybe sounds odd, but I think the best thing that came out of my injuries was gratitude um, because all of a sudden I couldn't participate in the sport and it made me fully appreciate my health and all the opportunities that skiing had been giving me before I was hurt. And it just made me more focused. It was like, okay, no, I really want to return to skiing. Um, and I became more grateful and in turn started working harder and appreciated everything, all the um, opportunities and support that I had more, and that made me a better athlete. Hmm. Wow. So what about the, the medals? Like, uh, what was it like realizing that you were about to actually win a medal and a gold one at that? <laughs> the, probably the best moment was, and it was 24 hours after I'd actually won, um, maybe 20 hours, uh, was actually getting the medal because that, it symbolizes everything. And the medal ceremony is so special. Mm. Um, the ski comp, the Olympic event is of course special, but it's, we also compete every week um, for the four years in between. So the skills and the judges and the course and the competitors and your performance are all really similar. It's, it's familiar, I should say. Um, the medal ceremony is like, whoa, I'm getting rewarded for something. I've been set this goal, and this is sort of the, the <laughs> pinnacle. And so the, the actual medal and the award ceremony are pretty amazing. It's a moment I will never forget, and at the same time, I can never really exactly remember how it went. Yeah. It was just a blur of emotion <laughs> and tears, and, and the national anthem is not really that long, so it was pretty quick, um, but it was it, it was a, an amazing Yeah. Oh man, I can just imagine what it was like for you and your family and Yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah. So what did you what did you do with the medals? Are they locked up in a vault <laughs> or in your bedroom, around your neck? <laughs> they're they're not around my neck. They are they're in two places. The gold medal is in like a fireproof box that's in my bedroom right now. But the bronze one is hanging on a a metal display that's downstairs in 
um, are in like the basement in like a TV room. And mm. it, that's a weird story. This summer, I was taking a marketing class, and the assignment was to co- create a marketing plan for a real company called Memory Metals, and they make customized with a laser. They like create these metal displays um, that you mount on your wall and you can hang trophies and medals from. And that was the assignment. I didn't pick the company. That was assigned to me. And I was like, well, this is faithful. Um, and so yeah. part of my marketing part of my marketing plan was basically telling them that if they made me one, I would post about it on social media. And the professor had let them know before the presentation. So they actually, at the end of my presentation, the, the owner of the company handed me this metal this metal display that has my name on it and has two silhouettes of pictures of me actually doing tricks that they got off of my Facebook page and they made this customized metal display for me. So that is so my academic and athletic life combined and it is now a display for my Olympic medals. Oh that's cool. And so do you guys uh, when other than the medals, do you get Olympic swag? Yes, you get cl- clothing, basically. Tons and tons of uh, I'm actually wearing, what is this round? I'm wearing a Sochi, like, one underwear top right now. It's, oh. like, it's actually from the medal ceremony. But we got, I think each Olympics, you got between 100 and 150 items. I mean, hats, gloves, scarves, jackets, vests. Yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. Some of it's amazing. Some of it's hideous. You get a combination of everything. I gave away a lot of it. I kept things I love, kept it, things that are important to me. And then I donated a lot of stuff because that's a great way to fundraise, um, is to give donations to things like mm-hmm. silent auctions and good causes. So um, hopefully all my items have good homes somewhere. Oh, great, great. And uh, so do you, like, do you guys, like, have one checked bag when you guys, like, are flying back out? I mean, I'm assuming you're going to have tons of stuff that you're leaving the Olympics with. Yeah, you have your, like, ski bag and your regular duffel bag that you showed up with, and then you basically have, like, two more huge duffel bags full of stuff. They... There's a couple different ways. They usually, the United States Olympic Committee, like, ship the bag home for you, but you don't get it until, like, three months later. So you put stuff that you're not attached to there. And then you distribute some of it. You give it to family. You do you desperate times. You kind of have to just make do um, and get creative. And so, and just one other question on that. Um, your skis, like, I'm assuming somebody ships all the skis that you need? Uh, do you go with one pair of skis? Do you go with different types or different climates? Like, how do you decide which skis to go with and which ones to wear and so on? So, mobile skis are quite a bit easier. Um, two pairs of skis. Uh, one, basically, a comp pair and a backup pair. And usually, I wouldn't know the difference. It would just be whatever ones were sharper um, or tuned more properly. But we, unlike alpine, like downhill racing, where you have to you have like a ski tech, and ours is not very techy. They're just like straight sticks. Um, and if it's really icy, you might sharpen them, or if it's really sticky snow, you might wax them. Um, mm-hmm. But you can do that all in the same pair. So you train on a pair and then compete on the same pair. And then you just have a backup in case something breaks. Um, but that's it, and that's, that's every competition. And we just carry a ski bag with, our, with ourselves at all times. So um, it's no different at the Olympics. Got it. Wow. So. You're now at uh, Westminster College in Utah. Um, what are you doing in college, and do you feel like ever coming out of retirement? <laughs> Every day a little bit, and at the same time, not at all. Um, I miss I miss the training. I miss competing. I miss being good at something. Um, I don't miss the pain. I don't miss the nerves and the stress. 
I don't miss the travel necessarily. Um, and I am, I just, every time I watch sports, I think like, oh, I could still be doing it. But I remember how much emotional energy it took to get myself to do a backflip and how much commitment it took. And my last year competing, um, I finally started having knee pain for really the first time in my career. I had knee pain like mostly during training. And all of a sudden, losing the motivation to train because of pain was sort of a tipping point for me because I've never had problems with motivation for training. And um, I always wanted to be the last one out there and training the hardest. And all of a sudden, the pain created this, like, oh, it's not as fun. Um, and, that, and that changed everything. So retirement was a good decision. It feels good to use my brain. But it is kind of weird being a 30-year-old uh, junior in a college classroom with regular old 18, 19-year-olds. <laughs> um, I'm a marketing major for now, but I genuinely don't know what the heck I want to do with the, the rest of my life. But I've got some time to figure it out before I, before I graduate. Absolutely. What did you want to be as a kid growing up? <laughs> An Olympian, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't plan past that point, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's taken you all this time to, to complete school and to, to even be a junior in college and you've, you know, uh, while juggling this Olympic career and you've given up a lot in order to pursue your Olympic dreams. Do you have any regrets? I don't. There were, there were moments of hesitation, whether, especially when I got hurt, should I have gone to school? But I don't. I don't have any regrets. I I guess I probably could have focused on my human relationships a little bit more as a competitor. That's the only downside to being a successful athlete is that it oftentimes takes a pretty selfish attitude um, because it is. It's all, at that moment, it was all about me and my training and my needs and um, my sacrifices. And so um, I'm sure I neglected um, my family and my friends and what people I cared about a little bit. Not, nothing dramatic, but just realizing that that's kind of all you're left with in life, um, it would be nice to balance those um, better. But I am really pleased with the way my career turned out and all the opportunities I had. So no regrets. Yeah. So what what do we not know about a life as an athlete um, that we should know? You can probably guess that um, So we, I think I competed in 15 countries throughout my career, and that sounds really glamorous, but I wish I could have time to tell you the stories of the horrible, horrible travel days that I endured. And usually it was to see one trail at one ski resort um, and like and a shuttle from the airport. Like we didn't, there were times we got to do some amazing sightseeing in Tokyo and in Sweden, but a lot of the time it was very unglamorous, sleeping in dirty, cold hotel rooms, um, all because we just wanted to compete. So. Um, again, no regret. It was completely worth it and built a lot of character, but it's not as, as glamorous as it sounds to the, um, to the outsider. I see. So, um, in closing, and this is a question that I ask all of my guests, if you could uh, travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself and why? <laughs> it would. I have lots of advice from my from myself. It would completely depend on how old I was when I was talking to myself because there were things that took me too long to figure out that I eventually did on my own, um, like the ability to focus and train really hard. I think that that's something I didn't do because it was almost. I'm guessing it was something to do with like if you if that's all you did. 
then you're putting yourself way more on the line. If it goes wrong, you have no fallback and you have no excuses. Um, whereas if you haven't trained that hard, then it's like, well, uh, that's why I didn't go well, I didn't train that hard. Um, but I wish I'd gotten to that place sooner because I think I be, could have become more consistent. And yes, it's scarier to give up something your 100% of your focus, um, but it's also much more rewarding. So I wish I'd done that. Not not when I was in high school. I'm glad that I balanced everything. But maybe when I was 19, it, during that Olympic Games, um, had I just embraced the sport and the opportunity ahead of me, then maybe I could have had even more success. Cool. So um, how can people learn more about you and uh, the sport of uh, mogul skiing? That's a great question. Well, the go- Googling is always good for mogul skiing. I think the best <laughs> way to learn about mogul skiing is to watch videos of it because it's a really, really exciting sport. If anyone has questions about getting involved, depending on where they live, I'm assuming um, a lot of people listeners will be living in the Vermont area, then I have some wonderful recommendations. You can, most uh, Vermont ski areas have programs, weekend programs that can become competitive programs as well if you want exposure to the sport. And a lot of uh, those coaches and those programs would be willing to let kids try the sport, like join the program for a day just to see if it's something they're interested in. Um, and of course, I am a proponent of Waterville Valley because they have a wonderful program, but as the, some of the other programs I mentioned earlier, like Mount Snow and Killington and um, Okemo, they all have programs as well. And there are also fun summer camps where you can jump on trampolines or jump into water um, to try the sport um, that way. And then to learn more about me, I am I think my face, I have an athlete page on Facebook um, that is not as exciting anymore because I put pictures of my dog and my and my <laughs> grades um, and not as many skiing-related um, things, but it's a good way to reach out to me. You can send me a message. And I hope that one more person tries mobile skiing after after listening to the, this podcast. Absolutely. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us your insights and your experiences. It's an incredible opportunity for me to be in the presence of an Olympian, yet alone one that uh, is on the Mount Rushmore of of your discipline. So (laughs) thank you so much for putting Vermont on the map and for being a role model to all girls out there who also dream of Olympic gold and showing them and also for showing us uh, grownups that no matter how much adversity one faces, be it torn ACLs, broken ribs, punctured <laughs> lungs, or even being from a small town in a small state of a population of 600,000 people, you know, settling for 22nd place was not good enough. So just like the, this brave little state of ours, you've proven your doubt is wrong and uh, you've proven yourself to be literally unstoppable. So thank you for representing <laughs> our state and our country with pride and honor and grace. And thank you for inspiring generations past, present and future. And I wish you well, best as you embark on the next stage of your journey. And maybe I might uh, bump into you on one of the slopes in Vermont. Oh, that would be lovely. Well, thank you for your insightful questions and best of luck to you on your quest too. Thank you for talking to me. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants, I welcome to the show motivational speaker Murray Banks, who has inspired audiences to act on audacious goals or showcase passion in all aspects of their lives. I struggle to move on because you can't. It's present every day. 
um, the residual effects of the treatment are present every day. So I don't know about other people, but for me, there's no moving on. I mean, I can't just put it behind me and go, and I don't know my outcome yet. Um, you know, I've working on two years of treatment now, and so we, I don't know where it's going to end up. Right now, we're, you know, I've got surgery and radiation and drug therapy all behind me. Now we just got to wait and see. So there's no moving on. Every morning I wake up, I deal with the effects of it. That said, yesterday, here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we live at 9,000 feet in the mountains. Everybody around here is fit and outdoorsy. All my buddies are big-time athletes. They've been great. <laughs> We've been going out mountain biking and hiking. And my friend said the other day, I can't believe with the drugs you're on, you're doing this. And I said, I can't imagine not doing this. So I just can't do it at the level I used to do it at. But I can still do it. And so that makes me reflect. Rather than think about living with cancer or what's going to happen next year, just staying right in the moment and just living right now and dealing with the cancer. We've got to figure it out every day. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen and what we're going to do. But I don't know. That lasts 30 minutes and then it's like, I got stuff to do today. I got to keep moving. 